right, John chapter 13 and beginning with verse number 1, John 13 and verse 1, and we're going to read down through verse 17, John 13 verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end, and supper being ended. The devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet. He needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who would betray him, and therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. For So after he had washed their feet, and had taken his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought Ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Praise God. Amen. And so we're going to start uh, with the subject of foot washing, and there's a reason why I'm starting there, uh, even though it's not the chronological order of what happened that night. Uh, there's a reason why, and I'll explain that in just a few moments. But I'd like for us first just to take a moment before you're seated and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts and to the hearts of everyone that's listening today and give us strength that we might receive from him. Let's talk to the Lord together right now, everybody. Jesus, we love you. Thank you, God, for being so very good. I love you, Jesus. Master, I need you right now. Lord God of heaven, I ask you, Lord, Jesus, do a work, Lord, in this service today to touch our hearts, to touch our lives. God, enlighten our minds, I pray, with the word of God. I need your help today. I need your strength today, God. Lord, would you anoint me? Would you help me? Lord, 
Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Let's worship the Lord together, everyone. Let's praise him right now. Let's praise him right now. Hallelujah. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. You may be seated. Amen. Let me try my best to get through this uh, as quickly as I can. And yet, as I said, I want to cover this as thoroughly as I can. And so let's begin here in John chapter 13. I want to say, first of all, I think it's important that we note that the things which Jesus did, he obviously was taking on the role of a servant. Now, foot washing to us is, is something totally different than it was in Bible days. And, and generally, hopefully, each of you are washing your feet on a regular basis and doing that in, at home in your tub or your shower or whatever you've got. And uh, you're, you're maintaining that level of cleanliness. But you have to understand that in Bible days, as they traveled these dusty, dirty roads in open sandals, they themselves might be fairly clean, but by the time they would arrive at their destination, their feet would be covered with dirt. Uh, if they had been sweating, the sweat runs down, turns that dirt to mud. If they've had to walk through muddy areas, that gathers along the way. And so if they went into a house, it was considered the proper thing for a servant to come and, and to wash the feet of those who had made that journey. It, it was a sign of, of servitude to them. Let them know that we want you to be comfortable here. We want you to be relaxed here. And so the servant would bring the basin and the towel and the servant would kneel before them and carefully wash their feet. Now I've been in enough foot washing services in apostolic uh, in the apostolic church I've uh, next month I will have had the Holy Ghost 50 years I started coming to church long before that I'd been coming for many months so it's already been over 50 years that I've been sitting uh, in an apostolic church and and uh, from the very first year that I started attending the church I attended had foot washing services. And so I've seen it, I've watched it, and I know that for the most part when we do it, it's, it's almost ritualistic in the way we do it. We'll cup a little water in our hands and pour it over the foot of the one that's there. But I'm going to tell you that servant who did this wasn't just cupping water in their hand and pouring it over somebody's foot. It was literal washing. They literally washed the feet of the honored guest. And so Jesus, the Bible says supper being ended, he took a towel and he knelt before Peter and began to wash Peter's feet. And Peter was blown away by it. 
put yourself in his position. Imagine for a minute that the Lord of glory, your Savior, your Messiah, is kneeling before you, taking your dirty, calloused feet in his hands. They didn't have a week's notice to groom their nails. You know, this was just the way things were. And they came in, their feet were what they were. And the Lord took those feet in his hands. And he didn't just pour a little water over them. He washed them. And Peter said, Lord, you're not. No, 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 no. I see what you're about to do. And, and look, Peter was not trying to be rebellious. Peter was showing honor. Peter said, you're taking the role of a servant. I'm not going to let you serve me in that way. I honor you. You shouldn't be serving me. Now, don't let this cause you to think that Jesus had a temporary lapse of identity. He didn't forget who he was. In fact, read for me uh, John 13, verse 3. John, uh, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. Jesus, knowing, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. Knowing this, the next verse says, supper being ended, This is where it begins to tell us that Jesus started washing his feet. So what Jesus did that day, he knew it full well. He understood full well that he was God incarnate. He knew that he was the Lord of Lords. What does Revelation 19, 16 say about him? And he hath on his vesture... And on his thigh, a name written. A name written. King of kings. And that name is King of kings. And Lord of lords. And Lord of lords. He knew who he was, Brother Goff. He understood he was the King of kings. He understood he was the Lord of lords. And yet with that knowledge fresh in his mind, John makes it a point to tell us that Jesus knew who he was. And knowing that, he knelt before these disciples and performed the role, the duty, the obligation of a servant. He was the king over all kings, and yet he became a servant. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Let this mind be in you. Now get this, saints of God. Get this, and this is important. This is important for us. People who say today, oh, that's an old-fashioned ritual. We don't have to do that. There's other ways to accomplish the same thing. Listen, the apostle Paul said, let this mind be in you. 
which was also which in Christ was also Jesus, in Christ Jesus, who being in the, who form, being of God, in the form of God, thought it not robbery, it not robbery to be equal, to be with, equal God, with God, but made himself, but made himself of no reputation, of no reputation. Took upon he him took the form upon of a servant, him the form of a servant, and was made and in, was the, likeness made of in men. the likeness of men. I'm preaching to you today that the King of all kings had a mindset that said, "I may." be the all-powerful one but I am here to serve others and Paul said let that mind be in you we need a fresh baptism of the mind of Christ that it's not about making us happy it's not about pleasing us it's about serving others we are brought into the kingdom of God with a purpose. We are to serve one another. Amen. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. He said, I didn't come here for you to serve me while I'm on this earth. I came here with the, with the express purpose. I'm going to serve you. And I'm going to give my life a ransom for many. And even the verse right before that, verse 44, says this. And whosoever of you will be, chief, will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. I'm telling you, the way that things work in God's economy are the exact opposite of the way that things work in the world's economy. If you want to be somebody in the kingdom of God, you've got to become nobody. Well, hallelujah, if you really want to be somebody in God's kingdom, the way to do it is to become nobody. Learn how to serve others. Amen. Whosoever of you will be chiefest. The Amplified says, whosoever of you would be most important and first in rank. The Greek word literally is best or foremost. Whoever of you wants to be the best, whoever of you wants to be the foremost, he said, let him become a servant. And it's interesting because there are two different Greek words used that are translated servant. This particular word is the Greek word doulos. It means slave. And you know, there's a big difference between a servant and a slave. Servants are usually hired. Servants are usually doing what they do to get paid. And if they don't like the job and they don't like the boss, they can leave and go become a servant somewhere else. A slave doesn't have a choice. And even if his master tells him to do something he doesn't like, doesn't want to do, he doesn't have a choice. And Jesus said, if you want to be the chiefest, if you want to be the most important, and you want to be first in rank, you want to be best, you want to be foremost, and here's the way to do it. Become the servant. Become the slave of everyone else. I, I, I don't say this to pat myself on the back. Um, and I'm hesitant to even say it. But, but I'm going to tell you, and Brother Hilton has been there. Brother uh, Josh has been there to see in Africa. It, it blows those men's minds 
when we tell them it's dinner time and they go into the dinner hall and, and they're all sitting there waiting to be served and I'm the one who brings the tray to them. It blows their minds because they're not used to that. They're used to everyone waiting on them and whoever is the chiefest, he gets a special seat. He gets to sit somewhere and, and everyone's gonna come and wait on him. They didn't like the idea that my wife was over uh, in the kitchen sweating and working and cooking. That's not the way they do things. It's not the way we do it in America either. But it should be. It should be. God forbid that we ever reach a place that we think everybody ought to be waiting on us. Those of you that are a part of the Truth Church, those of you, whether you're here or you're listening online, you feel a call to preach, don't ever get this attitude that I'm just going to go and sit while everyone waits on me. I'm going to tell you that's the opposite of what Jesus was. Well, praise God. Get a mindset. Get an attitude. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be doing what I need to do. I'm going to be involved in the service. And I'm not just talking about a church service. I'm talking about I'm going to be serving others. I'm going to be checking on others. I'm going to be asking others, can I get you something? Can I do something for you? It needs to become a part of our nature. Well, hallelujah. Let this mind be in you, Paul said. And so why do we continue this ancient practice? of washing one another's feet. Why do we do it? Well, first of all, it is a matter of humility. It's a matter of humility. Read John 13, verses 13 and 14. You call me master and you Lord. You call me master and Lord. And you say, and well, you say well, for so am I. Because so I, I am. am. If I then your Lord and but master. if I am your Lord and if I am your master. Have washed your feet. And your Lord and master has washed your feet. Ye also ought to wash one another's feet. wash one another's feet. If the king of kings can stoop before an humble fisherman whose feet were caked in mud, dirt, and grime, filled with calluses, broken toenails, who knows what. But the king of kings knelt before him and washed his feet. Who do we think we are that we are too good to do it for one of our brothers or sisters? I'm telling you, we need humility. We need humility. Uh, listen to me, saints. You know where I stand on, on, on homosexuality and all of that. The Bible's against it. It's abomination to God. But I'm here to tell you, if you really study why God destroyed Sodom, he didn't list homosexuality in the first few things that he mentioned. The very first thing that God said against Sodom was that Sodom was proud God hates pride. We need humility in our lives. 
Proverbs 22, verse 4, this is the wisest man to ever live outside of Jesus Christ. And here's what he wrote, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 4. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. By humility and the fear of the Lord. Listen to what else he said in Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goeth before destruction. Oh, what a contrast. Humility, he said. Humility will bring riches and honor and life. But pride, pride has a different reward. Pride is going to bring destruction. And a haughty spirit. And a haughty spirit. I'm telling you, God's going to pull the rug out from under everybody that walks around with a haughty spirit. God hates pride. You go back to the book of Proverbs and look, these six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. And number one on that list is a proud look. Listen to me, apostolics. We've come a long, long way and we don't remember the days of our forefathers who had to live, amen, with almost nothing. They had to preach under tents and brush arbors, have tomatoes and rotten fruit thrown at them while they preached. They, they didn't have cars to drive and, and, and nice clothes and nice shoes. They had nothing. We've come a long, long way from all of that. And I fear that we are consumed with pride in these days uh, that our forefathers did not know you want to see a move of God maybe if we'll get the pride out of our hearts uh, maybe if we'll get the haughtiness out of our spirit uh, God might meet with us uh, the way that he did with them oh Jesus the book of James now listen James James According to historical record and the, the idea, uh, the, the uh, feelings of most scholars and historians, James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Now let's think about the size of that church. The first day, 3,000 are added to the church. And then... 5,000 are added to the church. And then multitudes are added to the church. James, from all I can gather, was the pastor over all of those many thousands. You talk about somebody that by man's standards had a right to just expect people to wait on him hand and foot. To just expect people to take care of him. He pastored thousands. But listen to what he said, James 4 verse 6. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth God the proud. resists the proud. But giveth grace but he gives grace unto the humble. Unto the humble. And then four verses later he says this. Humble yourselves, Humble yourselves in the sight of God. In the sight of the Lord. And he shall and lift he you up. He shall lift you up. I don't believe for a minute that James was preaching something he himself did not practice. Well, hallelujah. Now, this same James, by all accounts, was also the half brother of the Lord Jesus. 
had the same mother, but obviously a different father. Here's another reason why he could be proud, but he wasn't. He wasn't. In fact, he didn't, from all I could tell, didn't go around identifying himself as, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus and I share the same mother. He didn't go around bragging about all of that. Here was a man who understood humility. What about the man with the keys to the kingdom? We, we talk a lot about the apostle Peter and, and the Lord said to him, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Peter, whatever you bind on earth is gonna be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is gonna be loosed in heaven. Here's the spokesman of Pentecost. But what did he say? First Peter chapter five, verses five and six. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves submit unto yourselves. the elders. Read. Yea, all you be subject one to another. All of you be subject one to another. And be clothed, and be with, clothed humility. with humility. For God For resisteth God the proud. God resisteth the proud. And giveth grace to the and humble. And giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Yes. That he may exalt you in due time. Isn't it amazing? James said it. Peter said it almost word for word. In James, he says, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Here in Peter, he says, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. James said, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and the Lord shall lift you up. Peter said, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he'll exalt you in due time. Both of these men had reason by natural thinking to be proud, but neither of them were. Jesus himself, the God of heaven in human form, taught concerning humility and pride. Let me give you just one example. Luke 14, verse 11. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased. Yes. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Yes. Whoever humbles himself is going to be exalted. But if you try to exalt yourself, you will be humbled. The Bible in basic English says it this way, for every man who gives himself a high place will be put down. But he who takes a low place will be lifted up. Amen. This word abased, whosoever exalted himself shall be abased. That word abased is literally humbled, or the Greek word is humiliated. Whoever lifts him up, himself up shall be humiliated, Jesus said. Well, I don't want the Lord to humiliate me. I don't want him to have to bring me down even one notch. I want to humble myself. Amen. So why do we still practice foot washing? Well, for one thing, as I said, it brings humility. But it also brings unity. Let's go back to John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, 
that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. Oh, yes. If ye have love one to another. Now, now listen, this is John 13. This comes on the heels of the Lord washing. I didn't, pardon the pun. I did not mean it that way. Uh, it comes on the heels of him washing their feet. Um, that was not intentional. This, this follows after he has just finished washing their feet. And he says here, he says here in these verses that I am giving you a new commandment and that is that you love one another the way that I have loved you. I want you to love each other the way I loved you. Well, how did he just show his love? He showed his love by washing their feet. And he said, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And then he said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have loved not one for another, but two. There's a difference. Four is passive. I have love for you. Okay, I, I love you. I've heard people say, well, I love them, but I can't stand them. That's a dichotomy I haven't quite understood, but I've heard people say that, and I guess in their minds they think that's the case. But, but I'm telling you, when you have love to someone, that's active. And that's what Jesus has just displayed by washing their feet. And he's saying, the whole world is going to know you're my disciples when they see you showing love one to another. When they see the way you treat each other. Now listen, church, we can take this and use it in a general sense that we need to be showing love to the whole world, and that's true. But that's not really what Jesus is saying in this passage. The real meaning of this passage is the way we treat one another as members of the household of faith. That's what's going to tell the world we're really his disciples. If the world comes into our service and they feel friction between this person and that person, or they hear somebody being short with another member or another saint, they see some kind of conflict going on. I'm telling you, they don't write us down as the disciples of the Lord. But if they walk in the door and they can tell, hey, these people really love one another. They really care about one another. I want to be a part of a family that cares for people like this. I want to be a part of a church that loves people like this. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. And so, this is why we do it. Because it helps to unify us. It helps to bring us together. In fact, John 17, 21 says this. That they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now, now, let me just say this. This is John 17. You all talk about me being long-winded. In fact, I won't identify anybody, but somebody said, can we put pastor on, what was it, 1.5 speed today? 1.5. I won't say I won't say who said that, but Brother Jerry was just kidding about it. And, uh, um, but 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 folks talk about folks talk about uh, about me being long winded. But look, let me tell you, Jesus started this sermon 
He started this sermon just a few verses into John 13, and it goes all the way through 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. And, and I can promise you, John didn't write down every word Jesus spoke. So just sit down and try to read from 13 through 17. See how long that takes you. And understand there was probably a whole lot more that was in that that the Lord spoke. In fact, in fact, I don't mind pointing out that Jesus got to teaching so long. One time he looked around and said, it's supper time and they hadn't eaten all day. He'd been teaching all day long, didn't even take a lunch break. It's not time to quit yet. <laughs> I've just been, these watches and messages and notifications. I, hallelujah. <laughs> this is dangerous up here. Praise God. We're liable to have a food. No, we won't have a food fight. Everybody's too hungry. They're not going to waste it today. Yeah. 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 I'm going to say, aim at me. Aim at me. <laughs> Praise God. Now, 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 now look, the Lord said, what I wanted to say was John 17 is really a continuation of what the Lord has been saying ever since he quit washing their feet. And in John 17, he makes this statement. He's praying this prayer. And he said, I'm praying that they will become one. I want them to be as much one as the Father and Son are one. Now, to a Trinitarian, that may not mean nearly as much as it does to us. We talk about oneness. And Jesus said, I want my people to be as much one as the Father and Son are one. No division. No disagreement. Now, this shouldn't create a problem. I'm trying. I really am trying to get through this, but it shouldn't create a problem for us. We believe in the oneness. We understand. We talk about the Son. We're talking about His flesh. We talk about the Father. We're talking about the Spirit. Now, understand that was real, genuine human flesh. How is it that the human flesh of Christ never, ever had a conflict with the Spirit? You know why? Because He made up His mind from the very beginning. Not my will, but thine be done. I'm going to defer to the will of the Spirit. Whatever that costs me, whatever it, however it affects me, whatever that means I'm going to have to do without, I surrender to the will of the Spirit. And we've got to have that same mindset. We've got to have that same sense of oneness. I will defer to my brother. I will let them have their way rather than fight for my own way. Let me ask you something, saints of God. What have we accomplished if we win an argument and lose our brother? What have we accomplished? I can tell you this. We have not accomplished the will of God. Because his will is that we become one, that we be one, that there be no division, that there be no separation. All right, I've dealt with this. I've dealt with it uh, in previous lessons. I don't want to spend a lot of time. Let me skip over a few verses. Go down to Romans 12, verse 18. 
If it be possible, if it be possible, as much as, as lieth in as you, lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Sounds like to me, Paul had a few problems once in a while with some folks. Sounds like to me, there were a few folks that Paul didn't really agree with, and so he said, "Let me just give you this as a guideline." He said, "If it's possible." Now we could say, "Okay, well, it wasn't possible," but we got to keep reading. If it be possible, what did he say? As much as, as lieth much in you. As much as lieth in you. Live peaceably with all men. What that says is you got to give it your very best effort. There are some times that some people just want to be disagreeable. They just want to be disagreeable. And you try and you try and you try. You want to make them happy. You try to make them happy. You try to please them. You try to rectify things. You try to make things right. But it just doesn't get anywhere. But you don't just get up and say, well, it's not possible. You've got to know in your heart, I gave it my very best. As much as lieth in you. Live peaceable. With all men. You know, Hebrews 12, 14 is a verse that we quote a lot, but we don't quote it fully. We, we really pick and choose the words out of that verse that we want to promote. Now, I'm just telling you the truth. I'm talking about conservative apostolics. Hebrews 12, 14, put that up on the wall for me. Let's look at this. I want to show you it's... it's worded a little differently than the way we usually quote it. How many times have you heard it quoted? How many times have you quoted? Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Right? Without holiness, no man. And that's a true statement taken from that verse. But that's not the depth of that verse. Read it for me. Follow peace Follow with all peace men. Follow peace with all men. And holiness. And holiness. Without which, without which no man, no shall, man see the shall, Lord. shall see the Lord. Now it looks to me like he's not just saying without holiness you can't see the Lord. He's also saying it's just as necessary that we learn to follow peace with all men. If we want to see the Lord in peace, we need to meet our brother and our sister in peace. If we want to live with him in peace, we're going to have to learn to live with one another in peace. I got to hurry. I got to hurry. Hallelujah. Third reason why we continue. We not only do it because it brings humility and it brings unity, the third reason why we do it is because it's simply a matter of obedience. The scripture tells us to do it. Jesus washed feet not because he needed to do it, but because we do. He didn't need to be humbled. He'd already humbled himself. He didn't need to become unified. Hello? He didn't do it for his sake. He did it to set an example for us. John 13, we read it a while ago. Read again verses 14 and 15. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, 
ye also ought to wash one another's feet. If I've done it for you, you ought to do it for one another. And then he says, For I have given you an I example. I have given you an example. That ye should do that as you I have done should to do you. as I have done to you. Look, saints, it doesn't get any clearer than that. It doesn't take a great theological mind to understand what Jesus just said. I washed your feet. I want you to wash others' feet. What I've done to you, I want you to do to everybody else. It's that simple. It's that clear. Well, hallelujah. Pay attention now to what he says. Read verse 10. This is John 13. You might want to just have your Bible open to John 13. John 13, verse 10. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not to save wash, is not saved to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. Now, this word save means accept. He that's washed doesn't need anything except he needs to wash his feet. And so the first thing that Jesus says here in verse 10, he says it needs to be done. We need to have it done. Now, I don't know how you feel about this because when I talked about it becoming a matter of humility, it's not only humbling to me to have someone washing my feet or for me to be washing someone's feet. That's not only humbling to wash someone else's feet, but it's humbling to me for somebody to get my feet in their hands. It's an humbling thing. And, and, and so Jesus says, Jesus said, you, you need to do this. You need to do this. And then he says in verse 14, read again. If I them, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, Ye also ought to wash one another's feet. Ye also, now look at this, ye also ought. ought. Everyone say ought. ought. You ought to wash one another's feet. Now, today, in today's English, we say somebody ought to do something. We're saying, you know, it'd be a good idea if they did. Right? When we say they ought to do it, right. we're saying that'd be the best option if they would. But that's not the word that's used here in the original. In the original, the word literally means under obligation. He said, if I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also are under obligation to wash one another's feet. Now, how do we get around that? How do we escape that? Jesus said we've got an obligation to do it. Not only do we need to do it, we've got an obligation to do it. Um, one translation reads, you must wash each other's feet. And then, read verse 17. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. I love this. You need to do it. You ought to do it. You'll be happy if you do it. And the word happy, again, I'm telling you when, and, and I don't, you know, I don't spend a, a lot of time in my teaching going back to the original. Once in a while, I'll pull out something that I feel like is beneficial to us. But when you go back to this word happy that's used here in this verse, the way that it is used in this verse, the word actually means supremely blessed. 
He said, you'll be supremely blessed if you'll do these things. So we need to do it. We've got an obligation to do it. And we're going to be supremely blessed if we will do it. Why would we not want to? You know that the Apostle Paul, and, and I've had some questions through the years about some of these passages, but with the early church, they didn't have a welfare system that provided for widows and orphans. They didn't have a government um, uh, program that could assist with the financial needs of those that were hurting. And so the early church took it upon themselves that if there was a widow in their midst, that they would take care of that widow. Uh, most of the time, it was difficult for a woman to find real gainful employment. There were times that they could find jobs if they had certain skills. Many of them were raised without any skills. In fact, the fact of the matter is, many of them married so young, they really hadn't learned a whole lot except keeping the house and cooking a few things and you know they hadn't really learned a lot they didn't have a lot of skills and then the lifespan was was not that great and and especially for men who are out working and most of their work was you know I mean fishermen could be out in a storm or a boat sink and and uh, whatever it was there were certain perils that every occupation faced there wasn't any IT work back then Except IT stood for it's tough. All work was IT work in that sense. It was tough. It was all tough work. And, and so uh, it was common for them to have many widows. And the church actually in Jerusalem found themselves very burdened because of all the widows that they had to take care of. And it was... There was quite a disputation, the Bible says, that arose among them because of all the widows they had to take care of and what was going on. And the apostles were trying to daily minister to these widows and take care of them and, and make sure they had everything they needed and, and, uh, and all of that. Well, the apostle Paul came along and had to set some guidelines that, you know, we can't take care of every widow that shows up. We, we don't have the finances. We don't have the resources. It just can't be done. So we've got to set some guidelines here. We've got to set some parameters. So listen to what he said, 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 and 10. Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old. Yeah, now, now again, please understand, the number that he's talking about here is the number of widows we're going to care for. Don't let a, 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 a widow be taken into this number. We're not going to count her among those that we're going to try to care for unless she's at least 60. All right? Read. Having been the wife of one man. She hadn't, she hadn't been, you know, married multiple times. And right. She's, she's been faithful to her husband, and now her husband's dead. Read. Well reported of for good works. Well reported of for good works. She may not have a lot of money, but she does care about taking care of others and doing what she can to help others. Read. If, she has, if she have brought up children. She's brought up children, and that, that didn't necessarily mean that it had to be her own 
children, but she has helped in the raising of children. If she have lodged strangers. If she's opened her home when people have come through and said, I'll take care of you here in my home. If she have washed and the saints' feet. And if she has washed the saints' feet. Well, in all of these things that we say, yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense. Paul said, we're not going to support her. We're not going to help her. She may meet every other criteria, but if she won't participate in foot washing, then we're not going to support her. It sounds like Paul felt like this was an obligation too. And he went on, if she's relieved the afflicted, if she's diligently followed every good work. And so she needs to have done all she can and be an example to everyone else before we just put her on the list of here's who we're going to support. But one of those things that she needs to have taken care of is she needs to have washed the saint's feet. And he made that specific. I mean, that could have fallen under following every good work. Right? But he wanted to make that one specific. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. She has to have washed the saint's feet. All right, so how do we go about this practice? What, what, and listen, there's a reason why I feel this obligation. We're, we're getting into crazy times where people come up with their own ideas about what scriptures mean. There are those out there that teach that, that what we should be doing is, is uh, like, you know, when the preacher's preaching, we're going to run up with a handkerchief and we're going to shine his shoes. And that's, that's the modern-day equivalent of foot washing. No, 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 no. R- run up, and, and I, I'm, hopefully you all have not had to see some of this kind of nonsense, but I have, I have. And, and running up while the preacher's preaching and shine his shoes, you know, you, you may be trying to show honor to the ministry or whatever, but that's not an humbling, unifying experience. Somebody that's an absolute devil could do that and, and not think twice about it. Try to make a point. I've, I've seen people, listen, I've been around church. <laughs> this is one of the benefits of becoming an old man. I've been around. I've seen a lot. I watched a man one night who hated worship. He despised worship and despised me just about as much. One night the rest of the church was shouting and so he finally decided, well, I better just do something so everybody at least think I'm in this thing. And so I saw him run around the church one time. And, and uh, I think, if I remember right, he still had cotton stuffed in his ears the whole time he was running around the church. He didn't want to hear anything I had to say. But, but he wanted to show the church, well, I'm participating too, I'm worshiping too. Other than that, he never made a move. So I, I've seen a lot of things. You're running up in shining shoes is not the same as foot washing. I can promise you that's not nearly as humbling as taking their feet in your hands. So how should we go about it? What, what is expected of us in all of this? Well, I think we ought to do exactly as Jesus did. He said, I give you an example. He didn't shine their shoes. He washed their feet. And I'll tell you what else he did. Let's read John 13, verses 4 through 6. He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, now notice this. He washed the disciples, plural, the disciples' feet. Read. And to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Simon said unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Mm -hmm. And so Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And now, here's Peter. And you know what's going to happen that very night? That very night, when they get through, they're going to the Garden of Gethsemane. You know what's going to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane? Judas is bringing the Roman soldiers. Jesus is going to be captured. He's going to be taken away. And Peter is going to be standing afar off. And he's going to deny the Lord three times. So, here, Jesus is looking at Peter, knowing, knowing that Peter is going to deny him. He told him. Before this night is over, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me thrice. He knew it was coming. And yet he washed his feet. Verses 10 and 11. Jesus saith to him, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. Ye, and ye and are clean. You're not, you are clean. But not all. But not all. For he knew who because should betray him. Who was going to betray him. Therefore said he, ye are not all clean. And then verse 21. When Jesus had said thus, thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And so Jesus makes it clear. I know who's going to betray me. I know what's going to happen tonight. And yet... He goes and washes. He doesn't pick and choose. When I really like John, you know, John's always been one of the favorites. So I'll wash John's feet and then say, all right, John, now you turn and let's start this down the row here. He washed all of their feet. Feets. All of their feet. He washed all. It's, we, we may have to break and eat and me come back and teach the next lesson. I don't know. I got to get my mind cleared up here somehow. He washed all of their feet. And, and it didn't matter to him who it was. This is my point. We need to wash feet without respect to persons. We don't need to predetermine, and I've seen this happen in churches, that you know people actually get together, well, I'll wash your feet and you wash mine. And they have it all set up and they know, and so they've got their little clique and they're going to stay together and they're going to show they're still participating, and, and that's not at all what you need to be doing. I'm telling you, you don't need to pre-plan and pre-pick and predetermine. If we set a, the chairs in a circle, just go and sit down and don't worry about who's across from you. The men on the pews and the altars, don't worry about who's across from you. It doesn't matter. In fact, I'm going to tell you this. If you're going to pre-choose, choose the one you would least like to do it for. 
look around and say, who really is a thorn in my flesh? Who is that person Paul was talking about that as much as lieth in you? If you're gonna pre-pick, pick them. Go wash their feet. And as you're washing their feet, you pray. And you ask God to bless them. And you ask God to help them. And you ask God to bring unity between you and them. And watch God start healing wounds that could not have been healed any other way. I feel the touch of the Holy Ghost. I'm telling you, God knows how to heal those wounds. But sometimes we have to make a move to get them healed. Amen. Jesus knew. Jesus knew what Judas would do. And afterwards, and we've talked about this, even, even when it happened, Jesus still called Judas his friend. He called him his friend. The Lord is no respecter of persons, and we should not be respecters of persons either. And I, I've got a lot of scripture here. I'm going to try to get through all this. But, but as, you, as you wash one another's feet, as I said, do it prayerfully. It should not be a time of laughing and joking. And, and this is another thing I've seen, and it grieves me in my spirit. That you're starting to get set up for foot washing, and somebody gets into a mood of levity. And, and, and I think all of you know me well enough. If anybody loves to laugh, I do. I love to have a good time. I love to laugh. But there's a time to laugh, and there's a time not to laugh. And I'm telling you, it's a very special and sacred thing, and we want there to be a spirit of unity and humility and love that baptizes us while we're washing the feet of our brothers and sisters. If you're not actively involved in the practice, you're not the one washing the feet or you're not the one having your feet washed. Pray for those that are. Get into a prayerful mood. Pray specifically for their families. Pray specifically for their needs. Let it be a time when our hearts begin to truly beat as one. Let me say this. Let me say this. Jaheem, stand up. Jerome. I got to eat. I'm sorry. I know you guys. I can tell you guys apart. You're the one with black hair. I know, I understand. You both do, I know. I was, that was a joke. It was, <laughs> Jaheem's over here trying to figure out what? I got black hair too. Um, let, me, let me say something to you. You are a child of the king. You're a child of the king. Nothing else matters. Who your father is, who your mother is, it doesn't matter. You're standing here in the house of God. You're a child of the king. And do you know, can you imagine the privilege God gives, is going to give somebody to wash the feet 
of the king's son. You don't deserve that honor. I don't deserve that honor. I'm not worthy to wash the feet of the son of the king of kings. But I'm given that privilege. And then when he kneels to wash your feet, this is a child of the king. Do you deserve? Are you worthy of having a child of the king wash your feet? I'm not. I don't deserve that. I'm not worthy. Thank you. You can be seated. I'm not worthy of that. But that's what's going on, Brother Hilton. When I'm washing someone's feet, it's not just my brother. This is a son of the king of all kings. I don't deserve this honor. I don't deserve this privilege. And when he's washing my feet, who am I that the son of the king of kings would wash my feet? I don't deserve that. I'm not worthy of that. And so do it humbly. Do it prayerfully. And do it joyfully. I'm closing with this. John 13 verses 6 through 10. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, Dost thou, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not well, now. What I'm doing right now, Peter, you don't really understand. But thou shalt know it hereafter. But you're going to understand it in a little while. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never you're wash my feet. You're not going to wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. If I don't do this, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter and so saith Simon unto him, said, Lord, Lord, not my feet if only. If that's the requirement, then don't just wash my feet. But also wash my, my hands, hands and my, my head. head. You, you just, if, that's, if it takes that to be a part of you, then Lord, just go ahead and just give me a bath. That's fine. I, but I want to be a part of you. And Jesus responded, He that is washed, he that is washed needeth not to needeth save, not except wash his feet to wash his feet but is clean everywhere but he's clean everywhere and ye are clean and you're but clean, not all but not all now why did jesus say a man that's washed needeth not save to wash his feet why did jesus say this i explained to you in the beginning of this lesson that back then you know they didn't have most of them didn't have very few of them had, if any, had a place within their house that they could really bathe and clean themselves. So servants would come and wash their feet because as they had traveled, their feet had become dirty and muddy. As they had walked along, doesn't matter what they were going to do, if they had gone out to preach the gospel, 
they come into a home, the fact was their feet had gotten dirty in that process. Their feet covered in sweat and grime and mud and dirt. So they'd had their bath. They were clean except there was dirt on their feet because of the road conditions. So the only thing that really needed to be clean was their feet. And here we are this afternoon. For some of you, it's been many years. For others, not so long. But we've been to the public bath of water baptism. And he cleaned us. His blood covered us. His blood washed away every sin. And we are completely clean. But you know, Brother Self, as I walk through this filthy, dirty world, every day, I can't help but get some of that on my feet. I can't help. I'm walking down a path that it's not my fault the conditions are the way they are. I I don't have any choice until the Lord calls me home. I gotta walk these dirty roads. I don't have to go back and be baptized again because things are clean here. I'll tell you what, when I come in and I can get my feet washed, we really are saying we're, for just a few moments, we're washing away all the grime, all the garbage, all the filth, all the things that we've picked up on this journey of life. Everything that we couldn't help, the cares, the worries, the fears, the heartaches, They're all caked on my feet every day I have to travel in it. But Brother Goff, God gives me the opportunity to come and let a brother or a sister wash all of that grime off of me and bring me back, Brother Nelson, to that pure, clean state. I'm telling you, there ought to be some joy That's why Jesus said, happy are ye if you'll do this. You ought to be happy when it happens because for a few moments, the grime of this world is gone. The filth of this world is washed away. And the joy of being one with my brother, my sister. We're all one in these labors together. I got grime on my feet and you got grime on yours. But we're helping one another on this journey, Brother Josh. We're helping one another. We're not going to make it there alone. We got to have each other. We're going to help each other get the grime off of our feet and walk a little more purely and a little more clean before the Lord. Until that day that we finally get over there and we don't need that cleansing anymore. Let's lift our hands and love the Lord. Let's thank him right now. I feel his presence here. I feel his presence here. Come on, let's love him. Let's love him. Oh, God.
Talk to God. Let's talk to God. Oh. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Why don't we stand? Let's lift our hands to the Lord, everybody. Let's reach out to Him right now. Jesus, we love you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Let's sing something. Reach out to the Lord right now. His spirit's here. His presence is here.
same time I know it's been a while I know you all have been patient you've been uh, faithful you've been engaged and I appreciate it very much what I am going to do right now is I'm going to have brother Goff come back and start leading another chorus but those of you in the congregation if you need to step out to the restroom get a drink just don't spend a lot of time don't, don't go out and just fellowship go take care of business come right back in let's get back into the spirit of the Lord and I've got some more teaching I want to do uh, on another subject here the subject of communion to our praise singers and musicians you'll get your chance whenever we get through singing and I'll give you a few minutes to, for you to take care of business as well and so I am trying to keep everything in mind now um, the plan the plan I hope I made it clear but originally we were going to have foot washing and communion and it was going to be about 6 o'clock before we ate 
So I don't plan on spending another uh, two hours. I can promise you that. Um, so we're still, we still should get done in enough time. And, uh, but I do want to give you that opportunity to, to go and refresh yourself just very quickly. But I don't want you dismissed. And to those listening online, please, please do not disconnect. I've got some very, very important things to say after uh, we sing another song. I'm going to come back and teach it. This is crucial. This is one of the most important things that, that the church does when we talk about communion, the Lord's Supper. And so you need to hear this. You need to hear what I'm about to say. So please don't disconnect uh, right now. And as I said, Brother Goff's going to come. He's going to lead us in another chorus. And we're going to sing again. And, um, and those of you in the congregation that need to step out, please just do it quickly. Come back in. Let's get back into a mindset of worship and praise. And, and then expect the Lord to speak to us again. We're almost there. We're almost done. Praise God. Brother Goff, come and lead us in some singing. To have the Holy Ghost and the fire and burning flame that keeps the prayer will turn in that kind of religion that you cannot conceal it makes you move, shout, cry, cause it's real. I've got my hand right in the Master's hand, and my soul's been anchored. In my Jesus' name, I'm filled with Him, free from sin. I've been born again. You've got to have the Holy Ghost and the fire burning flame that keeps the prayer will turn in that kind of religion that you cannot conceal. It makes you move, shout. Right, cause it's real. I've got my hand right in the master's hand. Soul's been anchored in my Jesus name. I'm filled with him, free from sin. I've been born again. You've got to have the Holy Ghost and the fire that burning flame that keeps the prayer will turn in that kind of religion. That you cannot conceal, it makes you move, shout, cry, cause it's real. I've got my hand right in the master's hand, and my soul's been anchored in my Jesus' name. I'm filled with him, free from sin. I've been born again. You've got to have the Holy Ghost and the fire burning flame. That keeps the prayer will turn in that kind of religion That you cannot conceal, it makes you move Shout, cry, cause it's real I've got my hand right in the master's hand And my soul's been anchored in my Jesus' name I'm filled with Him, free from sin I've been born again You've got to have the Holy Ghost and the fire burning flame that keeps the prayer will turn in that kind of religion that you cannot conceal it makes you move shout cry cause it's real i've got my hand 
Right in the master's hand and my soul's been anchored in my Jesus name I'm filled within free from sin I've been born again you've got to have the Holy Ghost and the fire that burning flame that keeps the prayer with we take our offering up right now you cannot conceal it makes you move shout Right, cause it's real, I've got my hand Right in the Master's hand And my soul's been anchored In my Jesus' name And I feel within Free from sin I've been born again You've got to have the Holy Ghost And the fire That burning flame That keeps the prayer will turn in that kind of religion that you cannot conceal, it makes you move, shout, cry, cause it's real, I've got my hand, right in the master's hand, and my soul's been anchored, in my Jesus name, I'm filled with him, free from sin, I've been born, oh, I've got to have the Holy Ghost, and the fire, that burning flame, that keeps the prayer but turning that kind of religion that you cannot conceal it makes you move shout cry cause it's real I got my hand right in the master's hand and my soul's been anchored in my Jesus name I'm filled with him free from sin I've been born again you've got to have the Holy Ghost and the fire that burning flame that keeps the prayer will turn in the kind of religion that you cannot conceal it makes you move shout cry it's real i got my hand right in the master's hand my soul's been anchored in my jesus name and i'm filled with him free from sin i've been born again Keeps the prayer will turn a kind of religion that you cannot conceal. It makes you move, shout, right it's free. Where I got my hand in the master's hand, my soul's been anchored in my Jesus' name, and I'm here with You know I've been born again. You must have the Holy Ghost fire that keeps the prayer will turn kind of religion you cannot conceal makes you move shout cry it's free when i got my hand in the master's hand my soul's been anchored in my jesus name filled within free from sin i've been born again let's love him right now oh hallelujah Hallelujah, I love you, Jesus. Praise God. Amen, amen. God bless you. We're going to do our best to, uh, to lay out uh, this next lesson as quickly as I can. And it has not been as long since I taught on it as uh, it had been since I taught on foot washing. 
And so hopefully it won't take me as long to teach this. And yet, as I said, there are new faces that are a part of the church, and I want them to understand why we do this. Uh, there's a big difference between an apostolic communion service and a Roman Catholic mass. There's a big difference, a big difference. There's even a difference between an apostolic communion service and any other religion having communion service. And it ought to be a special time for us. It ought to be, quite honestly, a miraculous time for us. It really should. And I've seen miracles happen during the communion service. And so let me, let me get started in this here this afternoon. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 23 through 30. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 30. Praise God. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. The Apostle Paul writes, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to your hearts. You may be seated. Praise God. Amen. And I really covet your prayers. All of a sudden, I'm really feeling this. Uh, I'm feeling thoroughly exhausted right now. Praise God. I'll do my best to try to get through this without having to get somebody to get me a chair and let me sit and teach from the chair. That's the way they did it in Jesus' day. Um, we're just not quite used to that. I, I think that many of us, if not most of us, are aware that what we call the communion service or the Lord's Supper is not really a new institution. It didn't really originate with the New Testament church. It was a carryover from the Old Testament. This was actually the church's form of the celebration of the Passover. And that's what Jesus was celebrating. When the Bible said we read in the first uh, passage... Uh, the first lesson, our text, we read that when supper was finished, that was the Paschal Supper. That was the Passover meal that they were eating together. That's what they were doing. It wasn't just a time of fellowship. It was in observance of the Passover. Uh, let's, let's read from Mark chapter 14 and verse number 16. went forth and came into the city and found as he had said unto them they made ready the Passover they made ready 
the Passover. So that's Mark 14. You, everyone see that? That's Mark 14, verse 16. Then we skip down to verse 22, and the Bible says this. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and brake it and gave to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. All right, so you can see in verse 16, they're making ready the Passover. In verses 22 through 24, this is where the Lord takes the bread and the fruit of the vine and institutes this that we now call the Lord's Supper. The Old Testament Passover is what they were observing, and so it's important for us to go back and look at the Passover and see what was represented by it, what did it mean, what was the significance, and, and how does it apply to the New Testament church. And so the Old Testament Passover came about because the Israelites were freed from their Egyptian bondage. You'll remember that on that night, on that night when they were going to be set free, the Lord gave explicit instructions and he told them that they were to take a lamb of the first year without spot, without blemish, to kill it, to apply the blood of that lamb to the doorposts of their house and to eat the flesh of that lamb. And then he said, I'm coming to visit tonight. And I'm going to go through the camp. And I'm looking for something in particular. I'm looking for the application of the blood. And if I see the blood on the doorposts of your house, if I see the blood applied, then I will pass over you. Now understand he was coming, he was coming with death. He was going to bring death to the firstborn. In every household in Egypt, death was declared. Now get this, saints. Every house, Jew or Egyptian, every house, death, was declared. Firstborn will die. The Lord said, I'm going to make an exception. If you'll take that young lamb and sacrifice it, offer it, shed its blood, and that blood is on the doorposts of your house, then that angel of death is not going to stop at your home. Now, it's going to stop at every house except those that have the application of the blood. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that's where the word Passover came from. That's what it was all about. Amen. Now, let's read Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 through 14. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. 
And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. And ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. And so I, I wanted to read all of that, even though I've told you the story. I wanted you to see that this last statement was directly connected to this act of Passover. He said, I'm going to pass over you. The blood's going to be a token upon your houses. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. You're not going to die if the blood is applied. If the blood is applied. And then he said in verse 14, this day shall be unto you for a memorial and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by ordinance forever. Now that's, that's strong language and it's definite language. And God makes it very clear. And so, Hundreds of years later, in the city of Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples were simply obeying the command from the book of Exodus. God had said, keep this ordinance forever. And the Lord and his disciples found an upper room that they could use where they could obey the commandment God had given in Exodus chapter 12. They were going to celebrate that night the fact that the Jews had been set free from Egyptian bondage. Now, sitting at the table or on the table that night were a number of things, things that we don't include today. And we'll talk about why we don't. But, but they actually had roasted lamb there. They had bitter herbs there. They had several things on that table that, that uh, they had to have in order to fulfill the command. This was a part of their celebration. This was a part of their feast unto the Lord and they were celebrating liberation as a nation in fact this became their New Year's day a day of atonement a day of new things a day of things to take place and transpire in their lives now, it happened in the spring of the year when Passover comes, but it was a new year for them as they celebrated this time. And so here, Jesus and his disciples were celebrating liberation from Egypt. But what we're celebrating when we take communion is not Jewish liberation. We're celebrating Christian liberation. 
For Jesus said this in John 8 and 36. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. You shall be free indeed. Now listen, it's, it was no coincidence, it was no mistake that Jesus was crucified at Passover. Remember, this is often called the Last Supper. It's this night they're going to take this and he's going to go out and be betrayed. And from there, he's going to be taken on and crucified. And, and so this was the end of that era and the era and the beginning of another. He was crucified at Passover. He was the spotless lamb. That's why we don't have roasted lamb when we take communion. Because Jesus is our lamb. The Jews had to sacrifice a lamb every year. We don't do that. Our lamb was sacrificed once for all. And he's a part of what we do when we have communion. Our lamb is present. Hallelujah. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Christ our Passover. Praise God. Amen. I hope, I just thought about this. I, I, I see Brother Larson commenting. Thank you. Uh, I want the saints that are listening online, be sure you keep those comments coming in so I know you didn't uh, fall asleep a while ago or you're not out at Pizza Street or somewhere. Praise God. If you are, if you are, you, you, you're going to regret it, let me tell you. If you've been fasting, that's not the place to go right now. Not against them, but I'm just saying that's not the right thing to be eating after seven days of not eating. You will regret it. You will regret it. Praise God. Now, um, Anyhow, Christ, Lord, help me. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. He is our Passover. And just as the Old Testament Passover was a time of celebrating freedom from Egyptian bondage, the New Testament communion service ought to be a celebration because we, too, are celebrating the fact that the blood provides our exception. Right? Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know what that is? That's the same declaration God made in Exodus 12. Somebody is going to die. But there is an exception. Those that have the blood applied, there's an exception. And that's what John 3, 3 through 5 is all about. Well, hallelujah. That's what it's all about. Everybody's going to die except those that have the application of the blood. Those that have been born of water and born of the spirit. No death is coming upon them. Well, praise God. Amen. And so it ought to be a time of celebration. I know people that are scared to death of communion. But it ought to be a time of celebration. I mean, there are people that will make themselves sick if they have to to miss communion service. They'll imagine a sickness. They'll get out 
They'll get out the hypochondriac's handbook and find a sickness. I don't want to be there for communion. I'm scared of communion. You shouldn't be. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of liberation. And I know it is, it is a significant time. And God does bring judgment sometimes. And we'll talk about that. But, but that's not what we ought to be focused on when we come. Amen. Now, let me say, and I've, I've taught on this many times, but again, we've got new, uh, new folks, and I want to make sure they understand that when it comes to uh, the Old Testament Passover or the New Testament communion service, we need to understand that everything that was there was symbolic. Just as I said, the lamb on their table was symbolic. It was a lamb of the first year. It was a young lamb. It had to be without spot, without blemish, because Christ knew no sin. Right? Everything that was there had a symbol to it. And so it is in the New Testament. Everything we do has a symbol to it. It represents something, and God does care about symbols. He does. Numbers chapter 20, verses 7 through 12. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock. Of, and do what? Speak. And speak ye unto the rock unto before the their rock. eyes. Speak to the rock. That's the command. Speak to the rock. All right, read. And it shall give forth his water. And it shall give forth his water. And thou shalt bring forth them to them water out of the rock. Uh-huh. So thou shalt give, shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. Yes. And Moses took the rod Moses from before the, the Lord. Moses took the rod from before the Lord. commanded him. Now, now, he was commanded to speak to it. But he took the rod as he was commanded. Read. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation they together gathered before the, congregation the rock. Before the rock. And said unto them, Hear now, Hear you rebels. Hear now, you rebels. Must we fetch you Must water out of this rock? Must we fetch you water out of this rock? And, and Moses lifted Moses up his lifted hands. Up. He was told to speak to it, but look at this. He lifted up his hands. He hand, lifted up his hand. And with his and rod, with his he rod, smote the rock twice. Smoked the rock twice. All right. And the water came out abundantly, and the, water and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. Now, now, before we read the next verse, let's, let's consider something. Did what Moses performed, the, the act that Moses performed, the thing that Moses did, did that hurt the rock? Did, did the rock feel that? Would the rock have known whether it was being spoken to or smitten? I mean, a rock. You know, I've heard people say he's dumber than a box of rocks. Um, I won't say who they're saying that about, but... But uh, a rock doesn't know anything. It has no feeling. It has no ears. And God says to Moses, speak to that rock. And Moses was angry at the people. And he took it out on the rock. 
and he smote the rock. No big deal, right? Oh, it was a big deal. What does verse 12 say? And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron. The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron. Because ye believe me not. To sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Israel. Therefore, Therefore, ye shall not bring bring this this congregation congregation into the land which I have given given them. Now there's not a much more severe punishment God could have given Moses. I'm going to tell you, it would have been more merciful to just kill Moses right then. I haven't been exactly where Moses is because I haven't had to deal with a million and a half people. But I'm going to tell you, Moses put up with for 40 long years, grumbling, complaining, griping, doubting. God performed miracles and the people would say, oh, praise God. And then grumble, gripe, complain, doubt. And God would perform a miracle and grumble, Groan, complain, doubt. Forty years. Everything Moses wanted to do, they didn't like it. Whatever he said, they questioned it. Somebody like Korah is going to rise up and say, who do you think you are? His own sister. Rise up. And she was called a prophetess. But she rose up against him. His own brother. Get the people naked and dancing around the golden calf. Forty years. Every time he turned around, problems, problems, problems. Had it not been for his father-in-law, up until his father-in-law came to see him, Moses, Moses was sitting out there all day long dealing with problems. Read it, it's in the Bible. All day long they came to Moses and he's having to decide. So-and-so hurt my feelings. She's sitting on my side. He touched me. 40 years of people being absolute babies, never growing up, never getting their act together, 40 years of it, it would have been more merciful for God to just smite Moses then and put him in the grave. Don't make him wander for 40 years and listen to all of this. And then say, at the end, when the ones that were were not uh, old enough to count, when when they go over, Moses, you're staying behind. You're going to put up with all this nonsense for all these years, and you don't get the reward. Why? Because you hit a rock. Well, that seems kind of harsh. The rock didn't feel The rock didn't know any difference. That seems kind of harsh, God, that you would do that. But you see, there was a reason why this symbol made a difference. Because the Apostle Paul would say in the book of 1 Corinthians that that rock was Christ. 
Not physically, not literally, but it was a symbol of Christ. And Christ was to be smitten. You see, this was their second time to come to this rock. And the first time God did tell Moses, smite the rock. And when he smote the rock, water came out and satisfied the people. From the smiting of that rock, there was water. But the next time they come to the rock, God says, now you just talk to it now, Moses. And instead of obeying God, he smote the rock. Now listen, here's why it, it brought such severe punishment. is because it violated the symbol. If that rock represented Christ, think about it. He is the rock of our salvation. He had to be smitten. He provided living water for us, right? But now when we need that living water, we don't smite him to get it. We just speak to him. And Moses violated a symbol. It wasn't because a rock got hit. It's because a symbol was violated. And it carried such severe punishment that Moses had to put up with the children of Israel for the rest of that journey and not get to get the reward. Just stand on a mountain and look over from a distance. That's all you're going to get, Moses. Because you violate a symbol. I'm here to tell you God cares about symbols. Yes, he does. And listen, I, I, and, and I know this is being broadcast and, and heard publicly. One of these days I'll be teaching on women's hair and men's hair. There, there's a symbol there. The New Testament symbol there. And God cares about symbols. And when we violate the symbol, we're in trouble. That's why he said... You do this because of the angels. The angels are going to defend the glory of God. You violate what represents God's glory and you are putting yourself in, in direct line of judgment from the angels of God. It's a symbol. It matters to God. It's another lesson for another day, but it matters to God. You, if you're listening and don't know what I'm talking about. It also comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's where we're studying right now, but it's just different verses we're not looking at, but it's there, and you can read it for yourself. So everything in the New Testament communion service also is a symbol. And when Paul started talking about maintaining this sacrament, he started talking about what was vital to the church. Paul didn't talk about the bitter herbs. He didn't talk about the roast lamb. He talked about two things. Even Jesus, when he had that last meal with the disciples, he didn't, some of you were like, wow, you didn't know they had lamb that night. You know why you didn't know that? Because the Bible doesn't specifically state that when they talk about them having that meal. It's understood because this was the Passover meal. You go back and read what they ate at the Passover meal. But Jesus, the reason the Bible doesn't mention them doing it is because Jesus chose two things on that table and said these two things are the symbol of what the New Testament church is going to need.
He himself was the lamb. He endured the bitter herbs. And so there's only two things that Jesus identified that night. That he said this means this and this means this. And Paul comes along as a second witness and he only deals with two things. So first of all is the bread. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. So he took the bread. Now, you know, we, we have community day, and there's no, I don't have a problem with this. We, we take community day, and we've got these little pre-cut wafers. And um, I don't have a problem with that. But, but I want you to understand that when they did it, they didn't have pre-cut wafers. They didn't go down to the local Bible bookstore and buy communion wafers. They baked bread, fresh bread, and it was a loaf. And if they're going to eat the loaf, they didn't pull out their swords. They broke the loaf, and that was important because Jesus said this bread, this, did we read the whole verse? Okay, read it again. And he said, and he, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, he, take, Now look, eat. he did what? He did what? He break it. Why did he break it? Because that bread represented his body and his body would be broken. He break it and said, Take, eat. Take, eat. This is my this body. This is my body. Which is broken, which is for, broken you. for you. This do in remembrance of this me. This do in remembrance of me. Every time you pick up that wafer, every time you look at that bread, you need to be thinking about the sacrifice that was made. This is my body broken for you. The wounds, the piercings, the blood that ran down. His body was broken for us. John 6.35 confirms this. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. Yes. And he that believeth on me shall never, shall thirst. never thirst. I'm the bread of life. And he was the bread of life. Now listen, because that bread represents his body, that's why we don't just go and buy saltine crackers or whatever. We specifically make sure that we buy unleavened bread. That's significant because leaven, again, we don't want to violate a symbol, right? We don't want to be like Moses and violate a symbol. And if that wafer represents the body of Jesus, we don't want leaven in that. In fact, they, when they did the Passover meal, it was specified. It had to be unleavened bread. And so we don't want leaven in it because of what leaven represents. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 8. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, 
that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so here he says, and this was the verse we read a while ago, that Christ our Passover sacrificed. He specifically ties leaven to sin. And so what would it mean if we had leaven in the bread that's representing the body of Jesus Christ? That would mean that we are saying there was sin in his body. And there wasn't. We'd be violating the symbol just as much, if not more, than Moses. When Moses smote what represented Christ, I believe we'd be doing a far greater disservice to imply by our actions that the body of Christ had sin in it. He did not sin. There was no sin. Now, the other thing that he recognized and that Paul recognized was the, the drink. Now, let's, let's read before I get into all this. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. After the same manner, he took this cup and he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Do this and remember to me. So he said, what we're about to drink represents my blood. Again, there's a symbol that, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself institutes. What you're going to drink at communion service represents my blood. All right? Now, with that in mind, I know that there are those who believe that we should use actual wine during the communion service. It is their contention that the ancient Jews drank wine during the Passover. It was fermented wine that they drank during the Passover, and they contend that we're not being true to the symbol if we don't use actual wine. I contend the exact opposite, and here's why. Fermentation, turning grape juice into wine, requires the process of fermentation. Fermentation is when the elements of that juice begin to die. That puts death in the blood of Jesus. His blood is not something that brings death. His blood is what brings life. Now, let me, let me read. To, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to make sure everyone understands. Um, I want to read something to you. I don't like to do that very often, and I don't do it very often, but... This was written by an esteemed elder, now gone on to his reward, a man that put out many, many preachers, a good man, from all I can tell. I never had the privilege of meeting him, but I know many people that came out uh, from under his ministry. 
he wrote this and sent this to me some years ago, and I want to I want to uh, read this to you. He says, "Alcohol contaminates the fruit of the vine. The fermenting of the fruit of the vine destroys all food and life nourishing qualities of the fruit. The alcohol formed during the rotting process, called fermentation." causes the pure fruit of the vine to cease to exist. It then becomes a dead, lifeless liquid, a deadly poison. There is no life in alcoholic wine. Jesus' blood was pure, warm, and alive when it flowed from all of his wounds. This is why uh, only the pure blood of the grape can represent the Savior's blood. Again, I say Jesus Christ himself never used the word wine in connection with communion. Why? Because there are several Greek words rendered wine in the New Testament, one of which is alcoholic. Therefore, he bypassed the word wine altogether and instead spoke of the fruit of the vine. Nor did any of his apostles ever use wine in regard to the Lord's Supper. And if you go back and read the original instructions of the Passover, God never gave them a commandment concerning the drink. So all those who say we're violating what the ancient Jews did, whatever they may have done or not done concerning drink is not the result of what God commanded them to drink because he didn't specify a drink. And it's not until the New Testament that Jesus makes the drink a vital part of this celebration. And he never calls it wine. He calls it the fruit of the vine. All right? So Jesus was the one. I'm going back to quoting now. Jesus was the one to institute a drink, not in the Passover, but in the communion. Why? Because he said, unless we eat of his flesh and drink his blood, we have no life in us. The grape's inward body membrane and fluid, while still in its skin and a part of the cluster, is pure and uncontaminated. Then when squeezed and crushed, there is the releasing of the pure fruit of the vine. That pure fruit truly represents the pure blood of Jesus Christ. The formation of alcohol, a deadly poison, comes into being when the fruit of the vine is made to spoil and rot. It's not natural. It's a guided process that takes time and control. End quote. Here's the point. Get the symbolism of the moment. This fruit of the vine is to represent his blood. His blood didn't cover our sin days and weeks after it was shed. It was in the shedding of that blood. Now, how does the grape shed its blood? Through the process of crushing. And just as the man Christ Jesus was crushed and fresh blood came from him, it is the crushing of that grape and the fresh undefiled juice, the blood of that fruit that begins to flow from the grape. That's what we use to represent the, the blood of Jesus Christ. 
not a fermented wine. Now, another reason why we don't use wine here, Romans 14, verse 13, read. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Now, the Bible says don't put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in your brother's way. When I first, I mentioned earlier, you know, 50 years ago, I started attending an apostolic church. And the pastor, at that time, when I heard him get up and teach on communion, he specifically addressed whether it should be wine or juice. And, and he talked about, he said, I'm telling this church, he said, I was a wino. That was my weakness when I was in the world. And he said, I, I have not, since God saved me, I've not taken a drink of wine. I don't know what it would do to me to do it again, even in a communion service. And I don't want to find out. Now, I've never been a wino. I don't know. I don't have those problems. I don't have those predispositions. I had somebody bring me a drink one time on a cruise and they set it down. I took one swig and it burned all the way down my throat. And I, I called the waiter. I said, does this have alcohol in it? No, 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 no. And then he looked and he realized he'd given me somebody else's. It's the only time that I remember specifically drinking. It, it burned. I, I, I'm just, I'm just, I started to say I've never had any alcohol, but I, I have, unfortunately. Unknowingly, unwittingly, I did. One little sip and that was... Too much for me, I promise you. Uh, it didn't cause me to walk like the boat was rocking or anything, but it, it was enough in that one first sip to know something's not right here. Something's not right here. And, and I'm telling you that I can't imagine someone who has, who wasted their life with it and us saying, now come celebrate the Lord and celebrate deliverance by doing the very thing he delivered you from. Hallelujah. So, I gotta hurry, I gotta hurry. I told you I would not keep you two hours, and I'm not, I'm not. Now, however long you stay after I dismiss, that's up to you, but I'm not gonna keep you two hours. All right, so how often should we take communion? Now, I, I've, I mentioned recently I had to attend churches of other denominations when I was in college. They made us go visit churches of other denominations so we could experience it for ourselves. And I visited one church one Sunday. They take communion every Sunday, every Sunday. Not only do they take communion, but the usher standing, he's got the communion tray in one hand and the offering plate in the other. And, and the idea is very clear to everybody. Visitor, or member alike, it's very clear. You want to take communion, you better give something. And they taught you have to do this every week. Now, we don't teach you have to do it every week. The Lord didn't teach you have to do it every week. Paul didn't teach you have to do it every week. Neither of them taught you have to do it every year. They didn't tell us how often to do it. They only said this, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye, shall, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. As often as you do it. That's 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six. 26. As often as you 
do it. Praise God. He didn't say how often. He just said however often you do it, make sure that when you do it, you do it for the right reason. You're showing the Lord's death until he come. Right? Broken body, crushed grape. We're showing his death. However often we do it, we're showing his death. Now, I don't believe that it ought to become so frequent that it just becomes commonplace. Nor do I believe that we can only do it once a year. Now, for reasons that we will explain momentarily, my pastor used to take communion. Sometimes he'd catch us by surprise and just announce a communion service without anybody even knowing it was coming. So I said, that's not fair. Well, let me ask you, how much warning is Jesus going to give before the trumpet sounds? How many weeks and months ahead of time is he going to tell us, you better get things right with your brother because I'm going to come. Does he give us any notice? Does he warn us at all? And my pastor just had the feeling that if we're really living for God, we ought to be able to take communion at any time. In fact, he used to say, I ought to be able just to come and knock on your door and have a communion tray in my hand and say, let's have communion. And you ought to be living in such a way that there's no hesitation. If we can't do that, what are we going to do at the rapture? So I I don't think we ought to do it so often that it becomes commonplace. But we don't want to go too long without doing it either. Because he did say, however often you do it, and we need to be reminded of the sacrifice he made. All right, now, let me tell you, the Apostle Paul was far more concerned with how we do it than he was the frequency of doing it. Let me show this to you. 1 Corinthians 11, 27. This is is very, very important. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. I want you to leave that verse up there for just a few minutes. I want everyone to look at this. I want you to, I want you to pay attention to what's being said here. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord. And what is that word? Unworthily. Unworthily. I made a lot of reference to the first time I heard uh, an apostolic preacher teach on it and he, as he was teaching on communion 50 plus years ago, um, he read this verse and I'm sitting there and I'm saying, dear God, you got to be worthy to do this. I'm not worthy. I, I know I've still got a lot of faults and failures. And, you know, I was brand new in the church I knew I still had a lot of weaknesses in my life I needed to overcome. and There were a lot of things I had to fix. and I said, God, I'm not worthy. And so when it came time, I didn't do it. I didn't participate because I felt like I'm not worthy of doing this. But I want you to look at the word again because the word is not unworthy. It's unworthily. It's not 
describing us as an adjective, it is describing the action. It's an adverb. It's describing the eating and drinking, not the individual. It's not who's doing it, it's how they're doing it. Now, this word is crucial because it means irreverently or carelessly. So whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord carelessly. See, we'll never be worthy. None of us will ever be worthy. I've been living for God 50 years. I'm still not worthy. But it's not about me. It's about how I approach it. I don't want to come and do it carelessly, thoughtlessly. It's not a joke. It's not a playtime. It's not a statement for me to make to my brothers and sisters. We got to have the right mindset. We got to have the right attitude about it when we're doing it. It's not a question of merit. It's a question of outlook. We know there's sin in our life. We know there's problems in our life. And we refuse to repent over it. And then we come and take the Lord's body and blood, which his body was broken, his blood was shed to to liberate us from sin. To give us freedom over that sin. And yet we know all we got to do is ask. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. But we don't want to ask him. We want to just continue living in sin. Continue doing what's wrong. And we're going to come and take that body that was broken to set me free from that sin. We're going to come and drink the blood that was shed to liberate me from that sin and then walk out of here and just keep on sinning. That's what unworthily means. It's your attitude about it, not your status. Now, you see, and there is a problem, and this is why so many people are afraid of it. Let's read uh, verse 11 here. If you don't have your Bible open, 1 Corinthians 11, it ought to be. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. All right, and then verses 29 and 30. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth. Or if you do this, if you eat and drink unworthily, eateth and drinketh you damnation eat and to drink himself. Damnation to yourself. Not concerning the Lord's not body. Not discerning the Lord's body. In other words, you're not looking at this as though it's really his body. And you're trying to do to him what he never did to himself. You're trying to introduce sin to his body. You don't discern. This is his body. This is his blood. Now, we don't believe in transubstantiation. For those of you who don't know what that word means, that's, that's a word the Catholics use. It means they believe that the minute you put that wafer in your mouth, it literally turns into his body. And the minute you drink that wine that they serve, The minute that goes in your mouth, it literally becomes his blood. We don't believe that. When Moses smote the rock, it didn't turn into Christ. It was still a rock. 
They came back a second time. It was still a rock. It never quit being a rock. It produced water, but it never quit being a rock. It was a symbol, a shadow of things to come. And that's what the wafer and the juice are. They are symbols. They are shadows of things. But God honors those symbols. And we don't want to introduce sin into the Lord's body. So here's what he said. When you eat and drink unworthily, you're eating and drinking damnation to yourself. And then what did he say? For this cause, cause, many are weak and sickly among you. you. And many sleep. And many sleep. And, And that's not, they snoozed while the preacher was preaching. That was a term for death. He said, I'm going to tell you the reason why some of you are having so many problems, physical, whatever, spiritual, is because you, when you come to the Lord's table, you know there's sin in your life and you're not doing one thing about it. And he said, you're literally taking in damnation to yourself and God's judging you. This is one of the reasons why my pastor, I started to say this a while ago, it was one of the reasons why my pastor would just call a communion service all of a sudden. Um, and he put that in us. And, and I did it one time when I was pastoring in another place. And boy, there was a man who got so mad about it. Ooh, he got mad. He was so angry. And it wasn't long after that that I had Elder Davis come preach for me. And I didn't say anything to Elder Davis. I didn't, you know, I, that's, you know that's my policy. I don't do that. And so I didn't tell him anything about it. And, and uh, boy, Elder Davis, I think the first night he must have preached faith or something. You know, had everybody loving him and, it was great. And so after service, he's sitting down. This man went up and sat down there by him, and he said, I want to ask you a question. And the elder said, okay. He said, how often do you take communion? And Elder Davis looked at him and said, well, I don't know. He said, usually about once a year is what we do. And then and the man got this little grin starting to come up on his face, you know, that he was about to come tell me that my own pastor only did it once a year. And... And elder said, you know, once a year. And then he, he just stopped. And he said, well, he said, unless I smell a rat in the church, and then I'm going to come do it immediately. Well, the smile was gone. And he realized where I learned that practice, you see. Well, that's the way the elder put it. Unless I smell a rat in the church, he said. And then we're just going to do it right now. We're going to take care of it. Elder Davis used to, used to tell us, he said, communion's God's way of sweeping the church. Because there are going to be those who are going to live carelessly. They're going to just, they're not going to care. They're not going to try. Let them take communion. God will sweep it out. Now, now look, having said that, I don't want people fearing communion. You know what you ought to be fearing? You ought to be fearing God. And you ought to be changing your life in such a way that the communion service becomes a joy, not a dread. You come excited about what God's going to do, not, oh, I might get judged if I do this. No, deal with what you think you're going to get judged over. He is faithful and just to forgive. If you'll just ask him. So there is a positive side to all of this, and I am trying to hurry here. There's a positive side to all of this, and we need to see that. Remember that the Passover from which this came, 
was a time of celebration. And that's what communion ought to be. Let's think about this. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. And when he had Ooh, given thanks, break. he broke it and he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. This may not have been the best lesson to do right before. Because we keep reading, take, eat, 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 eat. And that may be the only thing y'all are hearing out of anything I'm saying in all this. Eat, 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 eat. Hallelujah. Take, eat, this is my body, he said. That's broken for you. Do this remembrance of me. So what, why was his body broken? What was the significance of a broken body? First Peter 2.24. I'm going to try to go through these scriptures very quickly here. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. Uh -huh, now listen. By whose, By stripes, whose stripes ye were healed. Ye were healed. Do you know one of the things that broken body represents to us is healing. It's healing. And we ought to look at the communion service as this is my opportunity, Brother Goff, to get my healing. I have the privilege of taking part in this and I can be healed. And I've seen it happen. I've watched people get healed the moment they took communion. One of the first times I ever saw it happen many years ago in, in my home church in Dallas, there was a woman there that did not believe in communion. She, she believed in spiritual communion. Again, if you've never heard those, that term, thank God you haven't. But it is a doctrine that's out there. And you don't literally do it. It's just a spiritual thing. And she believed in spiritual communion. And I, I still remember one Sunday morning, Elder Davis was teaching on communion. And she just was bold enough to, to just stand up and say, Brother Davis, this whole church knows I don't believe in communion. Well, I remember this is, this, is, this is the guy that said if I smell a rat in the church. I mean, he don't mind saying what he wants to say. He didn't beat around the bush. So she stood up in church and made that statement. His response was, let's all pray for sister. He called her by name. So let's all pray for her. So she's lost and going to hell right now, and we want to pray that God will save her somehow. And he meant it. Because he believed if you don't take communion, you're not going to make it. He meant every word of it. He wasn't joking and he wasn't just trying to slap her. He meant it. Let's pray for her. She's lost. Well, that didn't, didn't work out too well. She got upset. Now her son, he's pastoring today. Good friend of mine. I won't tell you which one right now. I might, you might coerce it out of me later on, but I, he'd probably tell this story. Probably wouldn't mind if I told it. But, but anyhow, we'll let him have that. Uh, make that decision but but he was just a young convert at the time he had just prayed through to the Holy Ghost and he went home and started talking to his mom his mom had always had this she had this bad bone spur on her heel she couldn't hardly walk couldn't hardly get around because of this this bone spur and he, he told her he said mom he said I know you don't believe in it I know you think it's not right I know you don't agree that that's what the scripture means he said but why don't you in honor of the pastor why don't you just try it just see what happens. And he finally convinced her to do it. And when we took communion, she came down and she took communion. And I'm telling you, God reached down and 
took that spur off of her heel completely. She started dancing across the front of that church. I'm telling you, the power of God hit her. She never again questioned whether communion was real and whether it was supposed to be literal. Amen. She became a believer from that day forward. Amen. And, and I've watched God do it. Listen, we got to understand his body was broken. By his stripes we are healed. And when you come to the communion table, you come in faith and you say, Lord, this is why this happened. You see this sickness that I'm bearing right now? You see this situation I've got in my body right now? This is why your body was broken. And I'm going to trust you that when I take this, I'm going to be healed. Well, praise God. It speaks of our healing. Amen. The, the, the drink. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. I've only got a few more scriptures, I promise you. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. So this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Now, now, here's what that represents to us. Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the New Testament. This is, now, this was at the Lord's Supper. It's just Matthew's account of the same thing John's been talking about and, and, and the other, the other uh, gospel writers have talked about. Um, Paul talked about it. But this is, this is Matthew's account of this. And Matthew says that the Lord made this statement. He said this, he's holding that cup in his hand is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed, which for, is many shed for many for the remission of for sins. the remission of sins. That's what his blood talks to us about. Amen. His body talks to us about our healing. His blood talks to us about our forgiveness. We can be healed, but we also can be forgiven. And that's why I say, you say, all right, I hadn't been perfect. I've, I've made mistakes. I've done things wrong. But I'm here to tell you, if you'll ask him to forgive you, if you can't accept that forgiveness at any other time, come to the communion table. If you're serious about this prayer of repentance, come to the communion table and believe that when you drink that juice, that is a symbol that God honors. And at that moment... It's not on your record anymore. God's forgiven you. He's taken it off. This is one of the reasons why we don't have to get baptized again and again. Because his blood, that cup, is also for the remission of sins. Now, it only, only applies if you've had access through water baptism in Jesus' name. But once you've gotten that access by being baptized in Jesus' name, then we just come back and take communion and we know we know this is my blood that is for the remission of sins. Hallelujah. Amen. So as we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded of the impact of his sacrificial death. Read verse 26 again. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six. For as often as ye, as eat, often this as bread, ye eat this bread and drink this, drink cup, this cup, you do show, you show the Lord's death the Lord's till death. he come. You show his death. What does his death mean? mean to us I'll tell you what it means first of all it means he loves us First John 3.16 says this hereby perceive, hereby we, the perceive love of God. we the love of God this is how we know God loves us because he laid because down, his, he life laid for down us. his life for us and we ought to lay down our, lives, lay for down the our lives for the brethren listen this is how we know he loves us because he laid down his life for us and when I walk to the communion tray when I'm looking at 
that bread and that juice I am reminded he loves me I didn't deserve it I'm not worthy of it but he loves me I keep failing him but he loves me I keep messing up but he loves me he loved me enough to come to this earth and give his life for me he loves me so when we take communion we are ingesting that sacrificial death we are taking the love of God into our innermost being when we take communion amen we we ought to feel love like we've never felt it before both love toward God love from God love for our brothers amen for our sisters When we take communion, we are ingesting the shed blood. We are taking Christ's forgiveness into our innermost beings because it's for the remission of sins. Amen. If you have repented, you should expect to be delivered from anything. I'm finished. You should be expected to be delivered from anything that continues to plague you when you take communion. You should expect deliverance. You should expect forgiveness. You should expect healing, as I've already said. Whenever we take that into our body, we are ingesting not only his forgiveness and his love, but also his healing. And I'm telling you, we ought to expect results. Expect God to honor that symbol. Let's stand and lift our hands to the Lord right now, everybody. Let's lift our hands to him. Well, praise God. Praise God. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah.